Welcome to the Doxology and Theology Podcast, presented by the Institute for Biblical Worship at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. That's right, I said the Doxology and Theology Podcast, a podcast for worship leaders who know that the gospel is so good, it has to be sung. I'm your host, Matthew Westerholm, Associate Professor for Church Music and Worship at Southern Seminary and the Executive Director for the Institute for Biblical Worship. On today's episode, we are dipping into our worship resources to bring you a clip from Reverend Kevin Twitt. For many years, Kevin Twitt has served as the founder of Indelible Grace and minister with RUF Fellowship. In this clip, taken from our 2021 conference, Reverend Twitt discusses the reasons why we still need hymns. I remember when I was in college, when I first started being interested in reading theology books, found a lot of reading very helpful in coming to understand the gospel. And uh, I, I came across this essay by C.S. Lewis, which shaped me deeply. It was called On the Reading of Old Books. And Lewis encouraged us to read two old books for every one new book. He said one of the reasons was because it would help us see past our cultural blinders. And I, I took that to heart. It really did help me to read some of the older writers like Robert Murray McShane and J.C. Ryle and John Owen and the Puritans. And uh, I, I really took that with me really for the rest of my life. Um, eventually came to find that as I was working with students at Belmont University doing a ministry called RUF, Reformed University Fellowship, I found that my students were having this regular conversation with me where they felt like they were having struggles, they were having doubts, they didn't feel Jesus in their heart maybe the way they had when they were younger. And for a lot of them, that was causing quite a lot of panic, um, confusion. Many of them thought, well, I guess maybe I'm not really a Christian. Uh, now, it's worth exploring that question. I didn't dismiss that question, but the more I leaned into it, the more I realized that a lot of what was going on was that the songs that they were singing were really lying to them about what the normal Christian life felt like. They were singing all these songs that in some ways were pitched so high spiritually, like just, Lord, I ever, all I ever want to do is, is love you and I don't want to do anything else. I surrender all, you know, all these kinds of things that really were overstated and left no room for my students to believe that their doubts and their struggles were part of the normal Christian life. And that's when I started looking for some other songs to sing, songs in particular that were more honest about struggle and more explicit about the gospel. And I had a few old hymnals by that point and began searching in them, really looking for hymn texts that might be helpful. Maybe we could um, sing them to familiar tunes. I have this little book. This is an edition of John Rippon. Uh, hymnal. He was a predecessor of Spurgeon, so y'all should know about John Rippon. This is a wonderful collection. You could tell that somebody loved it so much that they repaired it back in the 19th century. And I began reading through this book, and I found so many hymns that I just felt like we had to begin to sing them. So we started doing that in the mid-90s, uh, kind of spread throughout RUF, and it really has become part of my life work, helping recover some of these old 
texts that have dropped out of use and finding ways to sing them today. Uh, and that's what I want to talk about. As I've reflected on this, as I've been kind of immersing myself in hymns for the last 30 years, um, I, I want to share a few of the things that I've learned, things that I would consider gifts uh, for the church today. So the first is this. Before we even get into kind of what the gifts of the of the hymns can be, I, I think we need to talk about why it matters what we sing. Uh, for some people, they may think singing is just the warm-up for the real meat, the sermon. Um, I will just tell you that so many of our preaching heroes actually spent quite a lot of time curating the church's song. People like Calvin, people like Luther, uh, but even people like Spurgeon who put together a hymn book. And if you don't have it, you should get a copy of that. Um, I, I think of people as well that you may not even know who made hymn books. People like George Whitfield and J.C. Ryle. Philip Schaff, the great church historian, Archibald Alexander, the first uh, president of Princeton Theological Seminary. So many of our preaching heroes actually really cared about what their people were singing. They didn't see those as, as two um, competing ideas, but they sought to find ways that the same messages could be uh, connected in both mediums, if you will. And here's what I think they understood and what I always try to encourage people. This is kind of like understanding total depravity as the key to really unpacking Reformed theology. Well, here's the, the insight I think that we need to come to understand why hymns matter so much, and it's this. Worship is formative, like it or not. Worship is formative. It is shaping us. It is molding us. And if that's true, then it really does matter what we sing. The songs we sing are forming us. Now, the Catholics have a phrase for this. They talk about lex arandi, lex credendi. The law of prayer or the law of worship is the law of faith. And it works two ways. That what we sing and the way we pray is the true way of um, understanding what we actually believe. But also, the way we pray and the way we sing shapes what we believe. And we see that as well. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 talks about how we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another as we gaze upon the Lord's glory. And of course, for Paul, you know, when he talks to the Corinthians and, and, and sums up his message, what does he say? I determined to know nothing among you except Christ crucified. That is the highest expression of the glory of the Lord. And so I went looking for songs that would really help form my students and form our churches into gospel-centered, gospel-driven communities. That's what Paul talks about in Colossians 3. He says, let the word about Christ, which is, a, I think, a synonym for the gospel, dwell in you, plural you, richly. And he says the way to do that is by singing. Now, there's a lot of other important things in the Christian life and in church life, um, scripture, memory, preaching, catechism, all that kind of stuff. But Paul in Colossians 3 says singing is vital for becoming a gospel-driven community. And that's what I found. We need songs that are more honest about struggle, more explicit about the gospel. In other words, we need songs that really model what the normal Christian life feels like. I would contend this, that the DNA of your church or your ministry group is expressed by the songs you sing, whether you like it or not. 
And if people walk into your church and all you're ever singing are praise songs, but there's no space for lament, there's no place for grieving, there's no solid theological content really unpacking the cross, then I think it really is going to show up in the formation of your people, or maybe we might even say the malformation of your people. If you think about the songs you sing week in, week out, what would people conclude about what matters to you and what kind of church you are? Is it a safe place for those who are grieving or doubting or struggling? Or do people feel like they have to put on a smiley face and a rah-rah attitude to really fit in? It really does matter. The songs we sing express the DNA of our church. And what my concern is, is that so often the songs that we sing are lying to people about the normal Christian life. And I think that really matters, uh, particularly for our young people who are growing up, trying to understand what mature faith looks like, and also for outsiders who are trying to figure out what Christianity is all about. And, and if they come in and they think, well, I just have to sing love songs to Jesus all day long and there's never any place for doubt or struggle, I'm not sure I have the temperament to be a Christian. That's a real tragedy when people think that having faith is a certain temperament. No, faith is seeing more, not seeing less. It's not shutting our eyes to reality. It's seeing Christ Lord of all in addition to all the struggles and pains of this life. So I think that it's important that we recognize worship is formative like it or not. And for me, see, finding older hymns that spoke clearly about the struggle and the solid comfort of the gospel was so important because my students needed to see past their own cultural blinders. And we still do, of course, right? I think singing old hymns, old songs, if you will, can really help us. It's not the only way, of course, but it's a good way. When we sing a song like, Jesus, I, my cross, have taken all to leave and follow thee, like the way that Henry Light in that hymn writes about suffering, he writes about suffering as something, an opportunity to learn and go deeper in our faith. That is not the way most modern people think about suffering, even in the Christian church. Most people in the modern Christian church think of suffering as something to get past as quick as possible. But from these older hymns, we realize that the first instinct of older writers is to sit in that sadness and that sorrow. What does God have for me? How can I come to know him deeper? Oh, joy that seekest me through pain. It's the way George Matheson writes it in that hymn, Oh, love that will not let me go. Not joy that seekest me by doing an end run around my pain, as most modern people tend to think. And so these older hymns help us say, see that there's a real different way of looking at suffering in the Christian life, a way that we may not even consider if we don't have these hymns as sort of a mirror, as sort of a foil to say, you know, the way you tend to think about this may not actually be the best way or even the right way. So I think it's so helpful. See, these older hymns help us remember that the church is bigger than people that talk like us and sing like us. That's one of the reasons I actually like to keep the these and thous and even archaic language when I can. Uh, sometimes I have to explain an odd term here and there. But I like to keep that language because my people need to know that God has a church that's bigger than just our generation. And particularly, I want them to understand and get to know somebody like Ann Steele and her hymns. You know, Ann Steele, I first discovered her in that little little book there, and I didn't have any idea who she was, but I'm just reading through that book, and I come upon a hymn, Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul, 
And I thought, whoa, like, I didn't know people wrote Christian songs like that. I certainly didn't hear them on the radio. We certainly weren't singing songs like that at my church, even though it was a good gospel-driven church, great preaching, whatnot. But, but we just weren't singing songs like that. And it wasn't just that that song was written. That song made it into the hymnal, which meant that the leaders and the curators thought that that was an important song for the faith community to sing. And it was so important for my students to know that the struggles that you have, that you find so rarely represented in the songs that you sing at typical churches, like those ideas, those thoughts, those struggles you have, well, this English Baptist lady uh, 300 years ago was writing about the same thing. She wrote about uh, night terrors. She wrote hymns about natural disasters like an earthquake. She wrote hymns about her struggles with assurance and, and uh, chronic illness, most likely malaria. And, and for my students to realize that, you know, the gospel has been going on and impacting people for a long, long time was really, really helpful. The other thing I'll, I'll say about this, about the formative power of worship, and I get this from my friend John Whitfleet, who directs the Calvin Institute of Worship. Are we really aware that the songs we're singing are forming our people for their encounter with death? That really does put a different spin on how you go about selecting songs week in, week out. Are we preparing our people for their encounter with death? John Wesley was asked one time how the Methodist movement spread so quickly. Why did it spread so quickly, John? And he said simply, our people die well. And the hymn singing of the Methodists had a lot to do with that, right? So hymns uh, are important because worship is formative. But also, I think one of the great gifts of the hymns is that they focus us on the gospel so well. Now, not all of them, but the best hymns focus us on the gospel. I really think of it this way. Worship is about restoring our sanity. And the hymns can help because they display Christ so beautifully. They don't just tell people about Jesus. They don't just tell people how to feel. I sometimes think a lot of modern songs were just singing other people's conclusions that don't necessarily hit us the same way as seeing Christ displayed and working through the implications as you go verse after verse after verse. Rodney Clapp said one time that worship is spiritual warfare and it's practice in seeing through common sense. Common sense says your value is what you contribute to the bottom line of your organization, whatever group you're part of. But in the gospel, we know that everything is upside down and we need practice inhabiting this kind of countercultural world where the love of God changes everything. And the hymns really can help us do that. The hymns remind us so often that we can only approach God through the shed blood of Jesus. Oh, I love that verse in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, where he says that all of our spiritual sacrifices are made acceptable in Christ. We don't worship God and count on the goodness of our singing or even how well we mean it for our acceptance with God. Even our best singing needs to be cleansed by the blood of Christ, and it is. Now, if that doesn't stir you, if that doesn't draw forth worship, I don't know what is. I'm afraid that so many modern songs might mention the cross, but they rarely unpack the heart of the cross, what it means. They don't gaze upon Christ crucified the way we need to right? Honestly, a lot of the modern songs, the major theme and the major thing expressed is, I want to see your face. I want to see your glory. 
I want to experience your presence, but it's often disconnected from the cross. And that's really a tragedy. I believe, like Luther said, that for every one look we take of our sin, we need 10 looks of the cross. And I think the hymns are so great for that. Listen to this verse from John Newton from his wonderful hymn, Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder. And I love that he includes wonder. It's not enough just to love and to sing, but you should be lost in wonder about the reality of the gospel. Verse 4 says this, let us wonder, grace and justice, join and point to mercy's store. That means the storehouse of mercy. When through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. Listen, our people, we ourselves need to know, need to remember that salvation is not just a fresh opportunity to try to impress God. No, God's smile is secured by what Jesus did, living and dying in the place of sinners and giving us credit for that life. And we need to sing that. We need to get that into people's hearts. All of our anxious, um, neurotic people struggling to believe that what God thinks about them determines everything. They need to get those songs into their heart and soul. They need to see their eyes open to see Jesus as more beautiful and believable than all the other lies, all the other idols that vie for our heart's affection. The other thing I would say that I really love about the hymns is the way they focus us on God's promises rather than our own. I am concerned that so many modern songs are all about what we want to do and what we feel, and there's a place for that. But honestly, friends, we grow by feeding on God's character revealed and by feasting on his promises. 1 John 4.16 puts it so well, we know and rely on the love God has for us. Uh, so often I feel like modern worship, we're trying to rely on kind of whomping up feelings of our love for God. But we can rest in the fact that we can rely on the love God has for us, but we need to know it to rely on it. I love the way Augustus Toplady put this in his hymn, Rock of Ages. He actually originally titled that, A Living and a Dying Prayer for the Holiest Believer on earth. And it says this, could my zeal no respite know? That means even if I could be fired up for Jesus uh, all the time without any variation, could my tears forever flow, even if I could weep over my sin the way I should, all for sin could not atone. Even if you could do those things, thou must save and thou alone. It puts the focus where the focus needs to be. Finally, the thing that I think the hymns really can give us is the way they engage the whole person. I really do believe they offer a more full emotional range of expression. It's often surprising to people because they think of hymns as being kind of dry and dusty. Uh, but when you actually read them, and sometimes when you put a new tune to them that connects music that engages people today, then I think you really realize it's some of the richest expression of spiritual experience that we have. And it also gives voice to women uh, other people that are often not represented sometimes in church, um, what they were feeling, what they were thinking. Uh, it also, though, connects head and heart, right? And takes us to places emotionally that, like, like the Psalms, the real depths and the real heights. And I think that is so important. The hymns you see engage our imagination, our intellect, and our will together. A lot of songs just go directly for the emotions, but good hymns give us rich language and images that require us to think and imagine 
as the way to stir the passions. The difference between writing in a novel that the heroine is beautiful, okay, that's poor writing, really, but to write in a way where the reader says, oh, beauty, I'm struck by it. The hymns open our eyes by using these kind of images. They tell us to praise God, but they also tell us why he's worthy of praise. Um, the, the last thing I'll say is that hymns broaden our range of metaphors. It really does help that so many of these hymns were written out of the King James Version, which is a very poetically rich uh, version of the Bible. And um, so many of these metaphors and images that are all over the scripture, uh, we don't even know them anymore. So many modern songs just focus on just a few kind of cliche images and yet the, the, the Bible is full of all kinds of beautiful ways to understand who God is and what he's done. And the hymns, I think, open uh, so much of that up to us in ways we really need. You know, when I was in college, not only did I read that essay by C.S. Lewis, but I also read a little essay by A.W. Tozer. And he said, next to the Bible, the best devotional book is a good hymnal. And after 30 years, I am absolutely convinced that he was right. So I commend the hymns to you. Um, dig out an old hymnal. Um, find some old hymnals on eBay. Just search through them devotionally. Maybe try singing some of them. Uh, maybe even putting a new tune to one text that's dropped out of use. It's a great way to get your heart and your head wrapped around the gospel. is a hard place to stop, but if you'd like to hear more, please go to our website, biblicalworship.com. Click around to find the word podcast, and you can find show notes for season two. We're happy to share with you all that we have for free. That is what we have for you this time on the Doxology and Theology podcast. Our show is produced by Evan Jarms, engineered by Isaiah Small and Caleb Sherwood. The music is by our good friends at Murphy DX. Until next time, this is Dr. Matthew Westerholm reminding you that the gospel is so good, it has to be sung. Peace be with you.